Well, uh, I get a kick out of rankings. I don't know if, you know, I think they're very popular online. You can find top 10 of anything. Uh, so we have Friday night movie night. It's always with our kids. Almost every Friday, you know, there's, there's not that many just truly great. There's a lot of good kid movies, but not many truly great ones. You can, you can always find me searching top 10 Disney movies for kids or top 10 movies for, you know, on, on Amazon for kids, whatever, things like that. If I'm checking sports news to try to catch up, you know, I may watch a few highlights, but I'm sure to look for the, the most recent power rankings. Power rankings have really nothing, well, not that much to do with actual standings and results. It's just some sports writers take on who's the best and who's the worst and everyone in between. If there were a power ranking of all of the passages and all of the scenes in the whole Bible, the passage that you just heard, especially that bit where God calls Abram and tells him that he'll bless him and bless the nations through him, it would surely be in the top 10 might be even higher than that. So far in our study of Genesis, we have discerned God's purposes from these stories. But here, more overtly than anything yet in the Bible, God says what he is all about in plain language. This is a hugely significant passage. It's, it's important in other ways, too. Uh, a lot of Bible scholars break the Bible up into two halves, not, not Old Testament and New Testament, but Genesis 1 through 11 and Genesis 12 through, you know, Revelation 22. Like this is the turning point. This, this is where we meet the man that the, the God's people for the rest of the story will say, he's our father, we're his descendants. Before this, in, in 11 chapters, we got, 20 generations of people, and they ended up spreading out to the whole earth. Now, for the next 13 chapters, we're going to focus on this one guy. The story slows down a ton to look at this. I mean, the, the shape of the Bible, the shape of the stories in and of itself says this is important. We've got to pay attention to this. Because it's so significant, it's likely if you've been a person who's been around the church world for any, you know, major amount of time, you have heard sermons, especially on Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the calling of Abraham, that he's, that he's been blessed. I, I can only speak for the ones that I've heard, and I've heard several, but almost all of them have a title, something like, Blessed to be a blessing, which is a lovely idea. God blesses Abram to, so that he can be a blessing. Uh, uh, these sermons celebrate Abram's faith. He's called by God to leave what's familiar to him and to go. He's not even told where he's going to go, and he does it seemingly immediately, although some scholars say maybe not so immediately. That's a discussion for another time. In fact, as he goes, the first few places that he stops to set up camp, he builds an altar. He builds a site of worship. He's kind of claiming the land for God as he goes. It does seem noble. It's impressive as he goes. 
by the end of our passage, never mind that little bit about, you know, not telling the whole truth about his wife and her getting taken by another man and all that stuff. Never mind that. By the end of our passage, he's wealthy. He's powerful. He, yes, he's blessed to be a blessing. This passage is the prosperity preacher's dream. This is what God wants to do for you if you would take the risk and follow him. So here's what we could do. We could highlight the obedient faith of Abram. We could make an example out of him with this simple takeaway, you know, go and do likewise and you'll be blessed. Abram was called to leave his family. Maybe you're being called to give a huge financial gift to the church or quit your job before you know what your next job will be or go to the mission field. We read this passage and say, if, if God is calling you to do that, you'd better do it and he'll bless you so extravagantly that you'll be overflowing with blessing. You'll have so much in your life that it'll be better to just give it away. And of course, he'll curse anyone who doesn't treat you right along the way. In college, I heard the testimony of a really impressive missionary. She had been amongst uh, a pretty remote tribe that was uh, pretty dangerous to outsiders for, you know, 20 or 25 years. And she kept saying in her message, the safest place in the world is the center of God's, of God's will. The safest place in the world is the center of God's will. I, I don't remember, but I wouldn't be surprised if she supported that claim with Genesis 12, 1 through 3. That's what we could do. We could take the life of, Ab of Abraham, Abram, including God's support of him, and make it about us. Since you probably can already get the sense that I'm going to tell you that's not what we're going to do, <clears throat> let me first say, if God is calling you in some way to do something sacrificial or risky, do it. <laughs> There's plenty in the Bible that supports like obeying God is a good thing to do. Um, I, I, I'm not sure the center of God's will is the safest place to be. In fact, I would wager that it's often the riskiest place to be, but I will tell you it's the best place to be. So yeah, like this isn't the passage that we, I would use to support that, but gosh, do it. We're coming back to Genesis after a, a six-week hiatus. So to read this passage the way I think it should be, read, let me remind you of the basics, the way that we want to read Genesis. We won't be able to understand this book correctly if we take the stories and just apply them directly to us. We make Abram's life, a, you know, a lesson for us, something that we're supposed to obey. Or if we take it as scientific guidelines and moral lessons that come straight to us, we can only begin to understand it by standing next to the people who first received this set of stories. And that's the Israelites who had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, maybe seven generations, and then were delivered. They, they had gone to Egypt because a famine had driven their ancestors there. And they were there in Egypt, and the things that were important to them were taken away. They had been slaves for 400 years until a man named Moses showed up, and this 
mysterious God of their ancestors absolutely pounds Egypt with plagues. And they're rescued, they're delivered into the wilderness outside the land of Canaan. And there at the base of a mountain, they hear God's voice and he introduces himself to them as the Lord who delivered them. And he's preparing them for a place called the promised land. As far as we know, they didn't really know who this Yahweh was until he introduced himself. Can you imagine being thrust from what you think of as your ancestral home, where your family has lived for seven generations, into suddenly a nomadic life in the wilderness where you're surrounded by people who don't want you there and you're, you're totally dependent on miraculous bread and water. You're, you're having to wander. You're having to live in tents. Can you imagine what that would feel like for you? Trying to understand what's going on. You would have some questions about that. What? Who is this God who did this? And like, who are we? Why would he choose us, this group of Egyptian slaves, and pull us out like this? The early chapters of Genesis begin to answer the first question, who is this God? He's the creator, the delighter, the blesser, the purifier, the judge. But except for some breadcrumbs that are laid through there, maybe when God creates uh, man and woman or, or when we're tracking the family line of Eve, we don't really know much about who are these people, why them, until now. Consider this. Abram and his family, they don't know the Lord either. They don't. Joshua 24 tells us that Terah... Abram's father worshipped other gods. He wasn't a follower of the Lord. A, a voice comes to Abram and calls him out. A famine drives Abram into Egypt. Pharaoh's greed threatens the very possibility of the promises that God made to Abram. A plague delivers Abram and his wife Sarai. And they're sent away. You guys, the people of Israel who are out in the wilderness are reading their life story in one guy. Do you see that? Abram is called out. He goes to Egypt. A plague delivers him. That's exactly what happens to them. And now they're on the backside of Egypt trying to figure out what it's all about. The twists and turns of the story are meant for them, for them to understand what is going on around them? What can they learn from Abram's life about God, his purposes, and how to follow him? And from that angle, I want to submit to you that the biggest lesson for the people of Israel and through them for us is an answer to the question, why us? Why us? Or maybe you could say, why, why are you doing this, God? And then that answer is followed by a demonstration of how serious God is about his plan. So, those are the two things we're going to look at. Why and how serious is God about this? So why? Well, the simple word 
is the word blessing. That's the answer. Blessing. The call to Abram, he's called to leave his home and go to the land that he's going to be shown. And it comes with a sevenfold promise. There are seven elements to it. The Israelites are already looking for each sets of seven, seven days, seven times that that uh, that blessing is mentioned in in Genesis one. Seven. There's so many sets of seven all over Genesis, so they're looking for it. This promise comes with these seven layers. I will make you into a great nation. Number one. Surely that means that. His offspring will both be large, numerous, and important. Number two, I will bless you. Well, what is blessing? I don't know how we define blessing. I think we think of it as like just good stuff, you know? Like, like uh, you, you think you're going to run out of gas, but you make it all the way to the gas station. Oh, what a blessing, right? That's kind of how we think of the word blessing. But... In Genesis, the word blessing, it it has some pretty specific uh, symptoms. It's all over the Garden of Eden. God blesses animals so they can be fruitful and multiply. He blesses humans in the same way, not only giving them the abundant garden, but also the authority to steward the rest of creation and to be fruitful and multiply. That's what blessing is for people. Then God says, I'll make your name great. Abram will be the face of this blessing. He'll be renowned. Fourth, he says, you will exemplify divine blessing. When people think of what it looks like to be blessed, they're going to picture Abram. I will bless those who bless you. Those who treat Abram well will somehow share in the blessings that he's being given. Uh, The one who treats you lightly, I must curse. In other words, anyone who gives Abram a short deal, a raw deal, God's going to respond to it. They will remain outside of the blessing that he's offering. And seventh, all the families of the earth may receive a blessing through you. Why is God doing this? Here's the big plan. He aims to restore all the families of the earth. That's why. That's why he calls Abram. That's why he calls the Jewish people out of Egypt. Through you, I've got a plan for all the peoples of the earth. They will share in this blessing of fruitfulness, joy, and authority. That's why. Think of it this way. Adam and Eve, they were the start for people, right? (laughs) They're the start. They, They... experienced the blessing, but then they distrusted God and stepped away from it. So Noah is the restart. Things get so bad, people get so corrupt that God allows the chaos that people are bringing on the earth to overflow literally with a flood. And it's given back to chaos. But Noah's offspring didn't trust God either. They built a tower to try to protect themselves from God and compete with him. So again, we need a restart, a re-restart. And that's where we are. God has promised not to destroy the earth again. 
He has committed himself to a much bigger plan. This is what he's about. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says, he is about redemption. The curse has spread, and now the blessing is following it and will overwhelm it. That's his plan. Abram wasn't the only one who embodied all of Israel. He did it before Israel. He's, you know, he, he bears Israel in his loins, so to speak. They are his offspring. But many generations later, another one would leave his home and family, go to a strange place, even spend a little time in Egypt in order to bring blessing to the world. Friends, every step of Jesus' life as recorded in the Gospels is retelling the story of Abram and retelling the story of Israel. Abram heard the call to leave his home, his security, his security, his identity, to go to an unknown place. When Jesus arrives on the banks of the Jordan, his biographers agree that his entire message could be summarized like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, leave what's familiar to you, turn away from it, and enter a new land, a new kingdom. Jesus' call is the same as the call that Abram heard. I'm not sure it's appropriate to use Genesis 12 to justify quitting your job, but it is absolutely appropriate to see it as an early version of the call of Christ to repent for the kingdom is near to surrender your security, your identity, your very self, and see what he has for you. When God calls Abram, he explains what will happen. That's the sevenfold promise. And when Jesus calls his disciples, he does the same thing, actually. He explains what will happen. When he's calling Simon and Andrew, who are fishermen, he says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. All they have to do is follow him, and he's going to transform them into something new. God told Abram that whoever blessed him would be blessed. Jesus says, hey, as you go out announcing the kingdom, anyone who gives even a cup of cold water to the least of you will not lose his reward. Jesus is offering the same thing again to his followers. God said he must curse the one who deals poorly with Abram, Jesus' followers are told again and again to let God do the judging, for vengeance is his. Abram was to spread the blessing. Well, what does Jesus tell his guys when he sends them out to announce the kingdom? Heal the sick, cast out demons, and announce the good news. They're spreading the blessing. If that's not blessing, I don't know what is. Why is God doing what he's doing? To restore his creation to its true state, its blessed and fruitful state. And why, why us? Well, why the people of Israel? Simply because he's chosen us to be among his agents. We're to be more Abrams who can exemplify divine blessing. Through our generosity, forgiveness, and love, we show the world what he's like. He appeared to Abram after he obeyed, and I think as we go, he'll appear to us too. 
But before we finish with this passage, I need to bring it down a bit. (laughs) There's one more lesson. How serious is God about all of this, about this call? The answer to the first question was blessing. The answer to how serious is God? Deadly. He's deadly serious about it. Our story takes us back to Egypt. On the way to Egypt, it's the very first time we hear Abram speak. And he's the great paragon of faith, the noble man, the father, you know, like, give me the faith of Abram, we pray. Well, the first time we hear him speak, here's what he says. We're going to Egypt, and they're going to see how pretty you are, and they're going to kill me because of you, so tell them that you're my sister. Wow, how inspiring, right? Gosh, even the fact that he's headed to Egypt is a problem. God has told him, this is the land I'm going to give you. And when things get hard, yes, the famine got severe. He flees out of it. It's the first place in the Bible where the land is identified as the the promised land. It's why the people call the land of Canaan the promised land. But Abram flees. He's been building altars to worship along the way, but when it's time to go, no altar, no prayer, no consultation with God. He begins to panic. He uses a half-truth with his wife. She is his half-sister, ancient times. But he uses the half-truth to hide the full truth. They enter, they tell their story, and their story creates a problem. It's not just any Egyptian who wants Sarai, it's, it's Pharaoh. And she is purchased into Pharaoh's harem, just like that. Abram, after all, is not a paragon of faith, the way we often think of him. He is as human as you and me. I, I, I think every day we actually twist and shade the truth about ourselves to save our own skin in different ways, to build up our reputation, to get by, to, you know, at any given moment, you're, there's things you're telling and things you're not. That's how we roll. The sevenfold promise, which had a pretty strong security clause, it, it, it wasn't enough for Abram to trust. He needs to come up with his own solution to save his own skin. And so his wife is taken into the palace and presumably the bed of another man. While Abram reaps significant rewards. Could you imagine getting paid off for your lie? How that feels. Probably not able to enjoy those camels that much. Every time you see them, you're like, oh, man. That camel's a reminder that you betrayed your wife. The Israelites in the wilderness are hungry and thirsty and tired and scared. Imagine how they hear this story. Abram is just like us, they would think. There's not much praiseworthy about Abram. It's not because he's such a good dude that God rescues Sarai. No, it's that God is so committed to his plan of blessing 
that he will do whatever. He doesn't reward Abram by rescuing her. He is sticking to his guns. He's chosen this man who, after all, is weak and timid to show his strength. And that's what God does over and over again. So, weak ones, be encouraged. Often when we look at these stories, we take the central character of the story and we find ways that Jesus is, in fact, the true and better of that person. And we could surely say, Jesus is the true and better Abram. You know, after all, Abram leaves uh, his familiar and goes to an unknown place just as Jesus leaves the throne room of heaven and becomes human on our behalf. That's wonderful. He is truly the true and better Abram. But Jesus is also, and this is one we might miss, the true and better Sarai. Now think about this. Jesus was betrayed for money, just as Abram was paid for Sarai's hand. Jesus' closest friend, Simon Peter, lied about his connection with him to save his own skin. Sarai was taken into Pharaoh's home and maybe his bed. Jesus was taken to the cross, stripped naked and executed. From inside Pharaoh's home, God on Sarai's behalf ransacked the enemy. Plagues fell and she was delivered. Well, from the other side of the cross, friends, Jesus ransacks the realm of death itself. Plagues fall on death through Jesus. The Israelites hear this, and perhaps, at least in one degree movement, they can be less afraid. God's got this. So if Jesus is the true and better Sarai. Who are you in the story? Well, honestly, you, maybe I should just speak for me. I'm Abram. I'm called by God to show the world what he's like, to be an agent of his kingdom and blessing. And I'm afraid a lot of the time. He's Sarai who takes on the punishment on my behalf. He's deadly serious about his promise. And we can joyfully obey knowing that our weak, timid half-truths will not slow him down. In fact, he will act on our behalf and bring us back again and again. Hallelujah. Would you pray with me? Father, we are, um, we are often so like Abram in so many ways. You have called us. You have called us to repent and enter your kingdom. And we're scared. We've followed and we've worshipped and we've seen you. And then we've messed up again. And we've act in, acted in fear again. We've tried to save our own skin again. And on and on the cycle goes. Lord, thank you that you are not deterred by me. 
Thank you that in your mercy and your loving kindness, you still use me and you still use my brothers and sisters in this room. Thank you that you still used Israel, no matter how messed up they were. Thank you for being faithful. And Jesus, thank you for giving yourself for us. For church, on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to his disciples, take this and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this, all of you. Every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That he entered into the realm of death and defeated it from the inside. And so, church, I would invite you when you're ready as we worship to come and receive the bread, which is the body of Christ given for you and dip it in the cup, which is the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's worship as we come.